I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. Before we get into today's episode, I want to share a fun little announcement. Well, I think it's fun. Hopefully you will too. Lots of you already know this, but at the end of each quarter, I create and share what has become quite a popular quarterly reflection workbook. This one is called The Heart Compass, and it's a simple PDF that's filled with questions and journaling prompts to help you clarify what's working, what's not working, and where you want to go in the next three months of this year. So if you're craving some gentle structure to help you tune into yourself, identify your actual wants and needs, this workbook is for you. It's the perfect accompaniment to an end-of-quarter reflection date with yourself, and it's available in pay-what-you-want format. And that honors my strong belief in creating resources that are both useful and financially accessible. And you can buy it at NicoleAntoinette.com slash workbook. That link is in the show notes as well. And if you're unable to pay even a small amount for any reason, but you'd really like to use this end of Q1 workbook, just email me at hello at NicoleAntoinette.com and I will gift you a copy for free, no questions asked. If you want to know a little bit more about it, um, essentially it's like a two-part workbook. The first half guides you through a reflection of January, February, and March, and the second half helps you to look ahead and dream and plan a bit for April, May, and June. There's space for gratitude, naming your struggles and worries, you know, for life admin and unsexy self-care, for joy, for planning some rest, recharging, rejuvenation, for making a deeper commitment to social justice, and more. There's lots of little easy bite-sized sections. You can either print out the workbook and use it, you know, fill it in that way, or you can just use whichever prompts resonate with you the most um, for your own journal, whatever your own journaling practice is. So NicoleAntoinette.com slash workbook. And like I said, the link is also in the show notes of today's episode. And speaking of today's episode, I am so excited for you to meet our guest, Margot Feldman. Margot is a writer, educator, and community builder who has organized award-winning events within the disability community. Their work centers around the question, in a world that works to oppress and divide us, how do we care for one another and ourselves? It's such a beautiful question. And this conversation covers a lot. We talk about how we might choose to be soft in a culture that really romanticizes grit, rigidity, and toughness. We talk about mutual aid and how we can have more proactive conversations about money, about poor trauma, and about the different financial circumstances that we might have compared to our friends. Margot is thoughtful and generous with their honesty throughout this whole conversation, and I really hope that you enjoy listening. All right, we are good to go. Margo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. Tell me how you have been soothing yourself lately. Totally selfish question because I feel like I am, uh, all of my like soothing coping mechanisms have been pushed to their brink, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for new ones. So what, what do you have for me? Oh my gosh, that's such a beautiful note to start on as well because I, I feel like it allows us to center something that just feels like nice um, and like kind of squishy is the word that's coming to me for some reason. My soothing lately, has really looked like unplugging from social media quite a bit. And I recently, finally, after like, I don't even know, like years of like wanting to start a daily journaling practice, have started to do that. And so in the morning, because usually my MO was like, I would wake up, literally put coffee on, and then I'd be on Instagram, like immediately, I now make my coffee. And then I bring my coffee and I do some like morning journaling, honestly, for like maybe even just 10 minutes. And it just allows me to like slowly enter my day. Mm, That sounds really lovely. I feel like my coping mechanism, I have a really soft blanket that I love and I just like carry it around the house. I like, I will have it on my lap when I'm on Zoom calls. I will like wrap myself in it in bed. I feel like I have reverted to my child self with the security blanket and I'm totally okay with that. 
Oh my gosh. I'm really there with you. My partner surprised me for Christmas with a weighted blanket, which I had like been wanting for a really long time because I have like chronic pain and complex trauma stuff. And, you know, I've heard like, you know, it just feels like the most soothing thing ever. And the first time I like put it on, on the couch, he like popped in and he was like, is it working? How are you feeling? And I was like, I don't know. And then literally a minute later, I was just crying. (laughs) And I was just like, this is, uh, clearly it's working. And so I like carry this like 15 pound blanket around like my apartment with me into different rooms. And it's really connecting me to some like early childhood baby swaddling situation, I'm sure. Oh my God. Adults need swaddles too. Yes. I have never owned one of those weighted blankets. I'm definitely interested in them. I have a clear memory, of course, pre-pandemic times of being in Bed Bath & Beyond, laying on one of the display beds, which I honestly don't think you're supposed to do, but laying on one of the display beds, testing out the different weights. Some of the blankets are really heavy. They are. And like 15 pounds even, which is like kind of, you know, you're... As a hot tip for anyone listening, thinking about weighted blankets, they say that like the weight of your blanket should be about 10% of your body weight. So for me, like a 15 pound is like right around. Um, And you don't really think about how heavy that is until you are literally bringing this blanket around your apartment with you. And you're like, this is like, I'm getting like a workout here. (laughs) Part weightlifting, part comfort tool. Great. I feel like we just did the sales pitch together for (laughs) for weighted blankets. Uh, Yeah, I think maybe I will procure a weighted blanket um, uh, because clearly I'm on this this Mm -hmm, blanket mm -hmm. train and that feels feels really good. Awesome. Yes, so soothing practices, blankets, and otherwise. I've also been spending a lot of time in the dark. Oh. Like right before we got on this call, actually, I um, closed my blinds or like curtain in the bedroom and had the little twinkle lights on, just laid in the dark and did some breathing, ate some chocolate chips in bed. I'm like, you know what? The heart and body needs what it needs these days. That sounds so soft and gentle. I hilariously, for reasons that, I don't know, maybe will be revealed to me in therapy at some point in my life. I have a really hard time being like in the dark other than when I'm sleeping. So yeah, it's like so funny how, you know, I can really enjoy like some nice, like soft, like lamps, like lighting the space. But if, you know, I'm always like the one in my house who's like turning on more lights and then my partner who's, you know, being conscious of like energy and stuff, I guess, you know, we'll start to like turn down the lights and we're in this like hilarious back and forth throughout the evening <laughs> with our, our different lighting needs. Oh, that's me and like auditory stuff. I I really feel bad for every roommate partner that I've ever lived with who wants to have music on all the time. And I just cannot like I love music at the times where I want that kind of input. But I think maybe I'm like quite sensitive. Um, it's yeah, I have a hard time. And my, my poor partner is always like listening to music. I come downstairs and he's like, all right, well, I guess the fun's over. Like, the music's got to go off. <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, So with the blankets and all of these things, you mentioned softness, which is perhaps a great entrance point into something that I really wanted to talk to you about. There's a term that you use that I really love, Mm -hmm. soft magic. Will you describe what that means? Yeah. So I think for like a while, I was sort of looking for the language to describe I guess like a constellation of things for me connected to really, I guess at the core connected to what healing has looked like for me and what relationships look like for me as an adult human in the world. And I've always really connected to the word softness. Um, You know, I love like softness on an aesthetic level, like pink is my favorite color. And I have this like soft weighted blanket. And, you know, I love this sort of aesthetics of softness. But then I actually read 
an essay by someone who has now become a friend of mine um, through the magic of the internet, which is like befriending people through the internet. It's one of my favorite things. Um, Andy Schwartz, who wrote this like really amazing essay on the politics of softness for Guts magazine. And she just like articulated and put together all of these like pieces in my mind around softness being this political orientation to the world that really rejects the kind of hard, gritty, tough, neoliberal subject who's like really guarded and has to be really rational and has to dismiss all of their feelings. And so that sort of like ended up being a kind of catalyst for me to think more about softness. And then I was, you know, thinking about what are the things that I had sort of been doing at this, I mean, I would say like at the start of my healing work, but like, honestly, I've been in therapy for like over a decade, but this, you know, pivotal point for me was when I started doing somatic trauma therapy about, I guess, like we're coming up on four years now. And what was happening at this time was like that I was just in this like very constant state of dissociation, um, really disconnected from myself. And I started to really like practice tarot in a way that I hadn't. Um, You know, I had a deck or two that I like, you know, sometimes like maybe pulled out But suddenly I felt like very called to, you know, go and take a walk to my favorite park in Toronto where I used to live with like my tarot deck and be pulling these cards. And later when I got this kind of language for understanding trauma and the nervous system, what I understood was like, oh, my, you know, unconscious or whatever we want to call it, like was drawn to tarot for self-soothing, was drawn to this, this practice to help me feel connected to myself. And so, you know, when I started to kind of conceptualize this idea of soft magic, for me, it, you know, is very much about recognizing that there's always something political about our healing and that, you know, I sort of, my catch line is sort of like when we heal ourselves, we heal the world that we live in. Um, And so soft magic for me is, is a way to, I guess, sort of summarize the intersections of witchiness and healing and a sort of, you know, femme queerness that, you know, I just, I don't know, I was joking with Andy about, you know, if like the end of the world comes, like what, what is my vision for that? And I just kind of want us to all be in one giant cuddle pile consensually, (laughs) of course, but like that sort of, you know, the vision that I have of just a very soft, um, connected way of being with one another. I don't know if any of that made sense. Um, I don't know if I was articulating it, but those are some of the the threads there. Yeah, I I love that that phrase of your friends that you shared the politics of softness and just this idea that there's always something political about healing and thinking about softness as a way to do that. It, it makes me think, I think it was from your, one of your zines called On Softness, uh, the quote, in a world that feels much too hard, that romanticizes grit, rigidity, and toughness, why and how might we choose to be soft? Mm-hmm. I love that, that question. And I, I feel like it's a question, it's an invitation. It makes me want to ask you for maybe some specific examples of how you are choosing to be soft lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have been, you know, it's funny. I think this is the case for so many of us, right? Where it's like, we're always, you know, not always, but for me, I'll speak for me. I, it's very easy for me to extend softness to other people. 
and very challenging for me to extend softness towards myself. So, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last year or so is really centered around like connecting with these younger parts of myself that did a lot of different things to survive. And in the past, I looked back at these versions of myself with a lot of shame, a lot of judgment, a lot of criticism. And, you know, shame and judgment and criticism tend to not really serve any of us. Um, And, you know, and it was really like preventing my healing because, yeah, I just couldn't, you know, connect with these like very wounded younger parts of myself. And so one of the things that I've been like doing a lot of is pulling out old photographs of myself from those years of my life, which is largely like my teenage years, like early adolescence into like early adulthood and making like really beautiful collages with those photos and sort of, you know, having this practice where I am not, you know, just keeping those photographs locked away in a box, you know, in a dark corner in my closet um, and really wanting to look at myself from those years and be like, yeah, you know, do I love that, you know, substance use was what you chose to do to survive? No, that's obviously actually really heartbreaking. But I can look and say like, wow, this like younger version of me really did everything she could to try to survive. And, and I really want to hold that and hold her with a lot of softness and care and, and celebration. Mm. Margo, I have to tell you, so I have never really connected much with a lot of the narrative around inner child work, Mm. right. Or like reparenting stuff. And maybe, maybe that's a conversation for another time. But when you were just talking about these, you know, maybe early adulthood, right. Adolescent, the different phases of yourself and essentially not demonizing our past selves for whatever the best that they could do at the time, you know, and all of this mistakes that they made. I feel like that opened up some space for me to rethink about something that I've I've thought about a lot. This May will be my 10-year soberversary, which feels like very wild. And so much of the demonizing of past self is something that I have worked to not do about like who I was when I was drinking, right? Yeah. And that type of stuff. And um it would be, it's like when you're talking about photographs that something has just hit me like very viscerally. I'm just like processing out loud to you right now, but of what would it be like to, cause that was for me, the era of actual photo albums, right? Like when I was in college and stuff, like you had the disposable camera, you got the photos printed out, you know, not everyone had the camera in their pocket type of thing with the cell phone. And yeah, yeah like, be, like going back and looking at some of those pictures and thinking about it in a different way would I think feel healing would fit like I I literally wrote that down in the corner of the paper I'm taking notes on is like homework homework (laughs) for this conversation Um, but I just I think it's it's really common to create these before and after narratives of ourselves especially if we have healed in certain ways or if we're really proud of some of the changes that we've made and who we have become but I think that that's a slippery slope because as soon as we create this binary like I was shit before and I'm great now first of all that's very cruel to our past selves and then second of all it puts our current selves on a pedestal that we can't stay on because current me sure I I think makes less destructive choices than past me but I still cause harm I still fuck up right Right? And so uh, there's something in that that I know that's not exactly what you said, but that's what I'm taking from what you just shared. <laughs> no, I mean, 110%. Um, like I think about, you know, so much of the the work that I do in terms of like, you know, teaching and, and, and in my writing as well is about like accountability and how do we, how do we hold space for the fact that like we are all capable of causing harm. We are all capable of fucking up. We will cause harm. We will fuck up. Like those things 
are, I don't know, pretty inevitable, um, you know, unless like maybe all of that harm is just directed at yourself because you, you know, just never say or do anything because of like that fear of fucking up. And, you know, honestly, through reading transformative justice and learning about the practices of transformative justice, I had to like engage with that work first before I could actually start to think about how I would apply that to myself. And, you know, I started to be like, oh, wow, it's so easy for me to look at people who have caused harm with compassion and care and, you know, like still be like, yeah, you did this thing. Not great. But, you know, I I could do that so easily. But then with myself, like I still deeply struggle, especially as a human on the Internet with like messing up and causing harm. And, and then I start to catastrophize that, which is like a whole other layer where, you know, suddenly my usually relatively small fuck ups that happen, you know, are not really causing harm, but I then create this like really catastrophic story. And then I'm just centering myself, which is like not what I want to be doing either. Mm -hmm. So you know, trying to just like hold that spaciousness for, yeah, the fact that, you know, we, we aren't this before and after we're constantly on this journey. And, you know, I am, you know, not going to ever make those same mistakes in the sense that who I am now is not who I was then, but if I cling to this investment in perfection and never messing up, I'm actually just upholding white supremacy. And like, you know, as a white person in the world, that's like another thing that I'm like really trying to always like hold there in imagining other ways of like showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this isn't a word that you used, so I don't want to like put words in in your mouth. But I, it makes me what you're sharing makes me think about this like disposability and like well, obviously one of my maybe not obviously, but I'll say it anyway. Like one of my values is that other people are not disposable, mm-hmm. and yet it really is heartbreaking though the way that I can treat myself like that or past versions of myself like that. And so when you were talking about sort of creating integration between what comes maybe more naturally to you in terms of how you regard other people, being able to take, it makes me think about self-compassion, right? And 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 maybe that's a thing that, that we can talk about next. Like, I'm interested in anything tangible that has maybe helped you to foster your own capacity for self-compassion, for making that sort of jump between, okay, this is how I treat other people, and now I also want to treat myself this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is maybe one that that people know or, or have done, but um. I'm often, you know, doing that kind of trick of, you know, I'm telling myself this very negative story um, about myself. And then I think, well, if my best friend came to me and said, you know, I'm a horrible person, I, you know, I'm irredeemable, like, you know, unlovable, et cetera. It's like, well, what would I say to her? And you know, this sort of started, I'll like tell you about it, like a mic drop, like therapy moment for me that like really um, started me on this, I think, like path towards self-compassion. I was doing gestalt therapy. I must have been like maybe mid 20s. So maybe, yeah, like almost a decade ago. And we were really working on my like very acute, intense anxiety. And I had to, my therapist had me play myself. And then we pretended that the pillow on the couch was my anxiety. And, and she was like, okay, I want you to like, tell your anxiety, how you're feeling. And I was just like, 
I hate you. I wish you would go away. Um, you only cause me pain. And, you know, all of the expected things. And then she was like, okay, now I want you to pretend to be your anxiety and respond to yourself there. And, you know, what my anxiety said was like, I'm so sorry that I'm causing you pain. I, you know, don't want to to do that. You know, I'm just trying to protect you. And, you know, after we did this exercise, she had said, you know, when you're like a parent and, you know, you your child wakes up in the middle of the night um, and comes running into your room and says, you know, there's a monster under my bed. You could theoretically choose to say to your small child, like, there's no such thing as monsters, go back to sleep. <laughs> um, you could say that, but ideally, what you would do is get out of bed, you know, grab your child's hand, say, okay, like, let's go find the monster, um, you know, and you're going to like turn on the lights and look under the bed and open the closet, you know, and you're going to validate that fear, and, you know, really show up and like hold that scared child with compassion. And so I often think about that story and that exercise in these moments where, you know, my my survival story growing up was that I must secretly be a horrible person. And, you know, that's why I didn't receive like the love and care that I deserved. And as an adult, that's translated into I'm secretly a horrible person. And one day everyone in my life is going to find out and they're going to abandon me. So, you know, in those moments, I just think about like, okay, you know, what's a different story that I could tell myself? What's a different way I could respond to that fear you know, knowing that it's not rational, and I use rational in scare quotes because I have a lot of issues with that word, but, um, you know, it's not necessarily like rational, but it feels real. So that self-compassion is just, you know, looks like validation. It looks like saying like, I get why that would feel terrifying. I get that that feels very real to you. Um And, you know, can I offer a counter story? Can I, you know, share something that maybe feels a little bit more gentle? So that would be, I think, one of the main tips that has really helped me. Yeah, I I really appreciate that, especially the emphasis on validation, because it's, I I mean, I'm certainly not the only one. You're not the only one. I think this is a... I guess, almost universal thing, the way that we discount how we're actually feeling or the mental gymnastics that I often do to convince myself that I'm not feeling how I'm feeling because those feelings are inconvenient. Right. <laughs> and right. that doesn't work. It's like, I mean, it works until it doesn't, right? You gaslight mm-hmm. yourself until the truth comes out another way or it comes out sideways or, <laughs> you know, whatever. But when you were, were sharing that story about uh, having the conversation with your anxiety, it made me think about um, a story that a friend of mine recently shared at a running and writing retreat the, some years ago that that she was at, that they went on a run and the exercise was when you get back that you're to write down sort of what your inner critic, like what you said to yourself on this run, right? And so that was like the journaling exercise. And I think it was positioned as this is just the exercise. But then what they were called to do next was to pair up and like to look the other, like to person in the (laughs) face and say those things to them. And like reading of like hearing about that, it makes me like, want to crawl out of my skin and die. Like it's, you know, cause we're always told, oh, you would never talk yeah. to someone else the way you talk to yourself, but like actually having to do it to like, you know, look another person in their eyes, you know, you're slow. You can't do this. You're not strong. And I'm like, oh my God, it's so terrible. And like those mic drop moments, like you're talking about, there is something about externalizing it that, that really does help. It has helped me as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I really struggled with um, through my teenage years and into early adulthood was this like really intense fear that someone was going to break into my home and, you know, kill me or do some, you know, variety of awful things to me. And, you know, as an, as an adult, I would, you know, often find myself, you know, 
leaning into trying to trust like my friends and I would call and I'd be like, so, um, I know that, you know, the likelihood of someone like being in my apartment right now is super low. It's probably just one of the many cats, uh, that's made a noise somewhere, but you know, I'm really terrified and just like knowing that I could verbalize that, Um, and I find this with like, you know, all of like the stories that we tell ourselves that like the power in saying it out loud, as you've said, actually like takes away some of the power from that story and lets it live somewhere else outside of our bodies and, and allows that story to feel like honored, um, because again, dismissing it and saying like, oh, that's irrational, that's stupid, like that's not serving us. And so, you know, really recognizing like, okay, there's some sort of protective mechanism here, or there's some sort of, you know, story that I've internalized from like the cis heteropatriarchy and, and I can externalize that and then just let it go where it belongs, which is not inside of me. Yeah. And I, I will add on to that. For me, sometimes I forget that I need an act like another step beyond that. I'm really mm-hmm. great at intellectualizing my feelings and like living my entire life from like the neck up. And while it's helpful for me to say, oh, you know, the origin of this thought pattern is, you know, like you said, like cis patriarchy, right? Those type of things. It goes back to something else you said before. It doesn't mean that the feeling or the experience isn't real. Right. Like even if it's maybe not based in fact or, you know, whatever language we want to use, I, it took me until like actually very recently to be like, oh no, no, I have to feel this feeling in my body, right? Like the anger, the grief, the sadness, the fear, whatever it is, like telling myself, oh, the root of this is X. Like it helps, but it doesn't like complete the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's like my current work, I feel like, where I'm like, oh, okay, I have a body also. It's not like all just in my head. It's cute. Fun. Yeah. I know. Um, it's, I'm just like remembering like one of my first therapy sessions with my somatic therapist and like somatic therapy for folks who don't know is like all about recognizing the ways in which trauma lives in our bodies. And so we need to be connecting with our bodies in order to like process um, this trauma And I remember, you know, and I thought I was like so good at feelings. I was like, I feel my feelings. I tell people what I'm feeling. I'm like so in touch with my feelings. And in one of our first sessions, she was like, she's like, where do you feel anger in your body? And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? What? Uh, body <laughs> anger in my body no don't know don't know what you're talking about there because <laughs> I'd been so cut off from my body for so 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 long um so yeah wow what like a phenomenal moment to have uh in terms of just yeah recognizing that you know we can know something intellectually but to like know it emotionally, to know it somatically, like, you know, those are very different things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask um, for folks listening who are interested, maybe, I mean, you said you you have worked, maybe are currently working with somatic therapist. Yeah. If someone's new to that world, are there any folks whose work you want to shout out? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the... I mean, probably the most foundational for me is Stacey K. Haynes's book, The Politics of Trauma. Haynes is the one of the people who created a field of somatic work called generative somatics. And that came out of her own training in, in somatic work, which, you know, has its roots in like Peter Levine and others. And sh- she was just like, yeah, this is great. Like being connected to our bodies is really great, but like, we're not talking about the political here and we can't talk about healing without talking about the political. And so generative somatics is like her response to that. So, you know, if you are a human who is politicized in any way, or is like thinking about the relationship between like us as individuals and like the traumas that exist because of the world that we live in, uh, cannot 
recommend Stacey K. Haynes's book enough. Um, okay. so I will, I will add that to my list. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, can be a helpful jumping off point um, for folks. So pivoting a little bit, although obviously everything we're talking about is, is related. Your work as a writer, educator, community builder centers around what I think is such a beautiful question, which asks in a world that works to oppress and divide us, how do we care for one another and ourselves? It's a very, I feel like sweet question and also like radical revolutionary question. And I want to focus specifically on, I guess, one avenue for this idea of caring for each other, uh, specifically around mutual aid, and ask you about your own experience. Um, I think it was last December. That was right around when I found your work and started following you. Um, Your experience of asking for mutual aid, if you could talk about what that was like and what that felt like. Oh, yeah. Mm, mm, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because I think it can be like, I have these moments where, and I mean, that's not the first time that I've had to ask for mutual aid. It's also not the first time that I've received mutual aid through others organizing it for me. Um, and like, just for some background for folks who don't know me or are familiar with me, I come from like a very poor working class family. Both of my parents are deceased. Um you know, I don't really have like family as like a safety net if I'm having a hard time with with money. And I so, so, so believe in the radical politics of like mutual aid, especially when we're thinking about mutual aid outside of just like offering that to people that we know but actually offering it to people who we don't know and who maybe we'll never meet. Um, But we recognize this interconnectedness there. So it can often look, I feel from the outside, like it's really easy for me to just like show up and ask for mutual aid, but it's actually one of the most terrifying things ever. Um, All sorts of like my poor trauma narratives come up, all sorts of like capitalist narratives that I've inherited come up, you know, and I do this like mental gymnastics of, you know, really trying to be like, well, do I actually deserve this? Like, am I struggling enough? Um, You know, and, and I had a friend of mine, who's also has like mega poor trauma sit down with me and help me do some like budgeting just to really assess the situation. And, you know, and I was sort of saying like, Oh, well, yeah, maybe it's not that bad. And like this money's coming in like down the road and like, maybe, you know, and maybe I don't need it. And, and they said, you know, Margo, if you're asking yourself if you need it, that's a good sign that you need it. <laughs> and, you know, they'd use this analogy uh, of like, you know, gender. And it's like, if you're like questioning your gender, that's probably a good sign that, you know, maybe you're not cisgender, um, you know, because cisgender people don't really question whether there's this gender, um, you know, uh, unless they're realizing that they're not. So anyways, I... So that was like a really helpful push. And so, yeah, I made this public Instagram post, you know, sort of explaining a bit about what had happened to put me in this place where like, essentially, I, you know, had to clear out my savings account um, of $2,500 and needed that because that was the money I'd set aside to live for the next couple of months. And you know, and just sat with like all of the, I don't deserve this, like, you know, all of these, these narratives. And what always blows me away every time, and I experience this when I'm in a position to like support mutual aid, is that it is actually like a profound gift to give people the opportunity to support someone else. And, you know, watching, you know, donations come in and watching people like send me messages and, you know, or comment on the post saying like, oh my goodness, I've needed to do something like this for a while. And I've been like so terrified and, you know, seeing you do this, like makes me feel like I can do it. Um, 
is like, wow, that's, that's some really great new information for my trauma brain to take in and hold and, you know, just remember that, like, I mean, all of us, we all deserve care. We all deserve to not just survive, but to thrive. And, you know, for some of us, like our financial situations are going to be like in flux a lot. And there'll be periods where I do experience financial stability for a bit. And that's amazing. Um, And I'm able to pay some of that forward. And then there are going to be moments potentially where I'm in need and then other folks get to offer that. And that's like the radical, beautiful world that I want for all of us. Yeah, same. Very much same. Um, Something that has really shifted for me in the last, mm, I'd say probably two years, is unlearning a lot of what I was taught about giving and moving from a charity model to more Mm -hmm. of a mutual aid model or, like you Mm -hmm. said, giving money to strangers, people who aren't, you know, I think that we've at least somewhat normalized a care model for certain types of intimate relationships, but being able to expand that out and say, this stranger on the internet is asking for, you know, XYZ, often money. And do I just trust that they're asking because they need it and I can just give it to them and not, I I really had to unpack for myself the, you know, uh, I assume rooted in white supremacy idea of, I need to know how this money is going to be used, right? Or like that I have any say over, like this person needs what they need. It's up to them to use those resources, how they want to use it, whether that's an individual person or a specific community. But that's been a huge point of unlearning for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting. I don't know if you saw Sonia Renee Taylor, who someone had like organized a payback black debt, um, yep. go fund me, like fundraiser for her essentially. And I think like over a hundred thousand dollars of like student debt got paid off by people on the internet who are like, Sonia Renee Taylor deserves to not have this debt hanging over her. And we learned so much from her. And so we're going to pay this off. And, you know, because, she was able to like now now no longer have to worry about you know this hundred thousand plus dollars in student debt. She went and bought a car, and she posted photos of herself with this car in this moment of like black joy, and then started to receive messages from white people being like. I made a contribution to like your student debt, and like now I see that you're like out buying a car and. Whew. And I mean, her, her response to it was like fucking amazing as with like everything, um, you know, and recognizing the racialized politics of who, who's watching over who spends their money and who gets to spend their money in what ways. Um, but you know, it was this like, you know, fascinating moment for me as like someone who's like poor, I'm just like, well, of course, like she went and bought a car. She no longer has to worry about a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Like this, makes sense to me, but to, you know, these white people like who are clearly working in this very like charity model mindset, which really strips the person on the receiving end of any sense of autonomy, you know, that was not, that was not sanctioned um, by them. And yeah, wow. Watching that unfold was wild. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that the giving is conditional. You can have this as long as you behave in the way, you know, and and obviously that happens in lots of relationships and not just with money. Um, So that makes me, so I want to come back to your experience that you were just sharing about of asking for that mutual aid because afterward on Instagram, you shared some conversation templates for folks to have more proactive conversations about money, about poor trauma, like you mentioned, and about addressing financial access needs within their own relationships that honestly was so helpful for me. It was a perspective that I had not thought about before. And I was hoping you could share some of that with folks, like maybe about how someone might share their own access needs with the more financial financially stable humans in their life or about how to receive those needs if you're the one that's more financially stable because 
who like it again, it has only been in the last however many years that I've started really talking about money within my friendships so much. And what does it look like if people are in completely different circumstances or really have different class backgrounds, have different class privilege? Um, I know that was just like a big topic that I opened, but anything in there um, yeah. specifically that you think could be useful? Mm. I love talking about this. It's so like... Uh, Capitalism is so fascinating to me for all of its paradoxes because we live in a world that's like obsessed with money and then we're told we should never talk about it. Oh my God. It's, it's, talking about money is like my favorite. I mean, anyone who's been listening to this podcast and like is part of my Patreon community, like I feel like all we do is talk about money. So I'm with you. Yeah. 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 It's just like, yeah, we've been, you know, it's like you don't ask someone, you know, how much money they make at their job or how much they pay in rent at their apartment. Like we just, everything is very hush hush. And yeah, we're supposed to be like obsessed with money and making money and having money. Um, and so you know, I think that there's like, it's so powerful when, um, and so like kind of in a way anti-capitalist to be like, I'm going to like ask you these questions about money and your financial situation that I've been taught is like taboo or impolite. So, I mean, in my like, you know, friendships, um, we kind of just like always know for the most part where, how other people are doing financially um, just because that is like an open topic. So like one of my best friends has like a really great, like stable, um, like full-time salaried job. And, you know, we know that like she has that like financial stability and access and makes more income than me and my other like best friend in this like little group. And so what that can sometimes look like is, you know, one of us will get an idea. I mean, usually this is like in pre-pandemic times of like an event we wanted to go to and, you know, recognizing that that event costs money and that, you know, depending on the day, week, month, um, that, you know, some of us might not have the same access to even, you know, spending that $20 to go to an event. And so there's always a kind of check-in that looks like, hey, you know, I saw this event. It looks like something I think we would really enjoy. I'm not sure like where you're at financially this month, but I would be really happy to pay for part or all of your ticket if like money is an access barrier. And it's just like as simple as that, really. And, you know, then that person can choose to accept it or not accept it, depending on what their situation is. And, you know, it's really important to like respect the autonomy of that person in the decision that they make, which might be, you know, like, I, I don't have the money to afford it. And I also, you know, I'm thinking that like, this maybe is not like the thing I would want to do and have you pay for. Mm -hmm. um, and just being like, all right, cool, great. You know, is there something else that we would want to do that I could like support us in doing so that we're spending time together and maybe I can go with someone else to like this event that I want to go to. So yeah, really letting that person have their autonomy there, even if their choice to like say no is rooted in their own like poor shame and, you know, just like honoring that as being real and valid also. So that would be, you know, one, one way that I would, you know, talk about it from the angle of like the person who potentially has like more financial stability or access, um, I've also been in conversations with people where I've had to like name with them, like, Hey, you know, the last like month, like every time we've hung out, it's always been, you know, somewhere where we've had to spend money. And I, you know, like, this is like, I'd like there, us to be a little bit more thoughtful around like having like low cost or like free um, like hangouts together. Like I'm just happy to hang out in the park with you. Like I don't need to go out for dinner or do X um, thing. And, you know, so just like naming it as like something that you're seeing, there doesn't have to be any judgment there, but just like a, Hey, I'm noticing this pattern 
and, you know, want to articulate my own boundary around this pattern and see what we can do to collaborate on, you know, a different choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I feel like there's like a larger topic potentially that you're speaking to here of how to hear other people's boundaries without feeling shame or judgment. Which, like, woof, I think, I mean, I, I definitely struggle with that. Like, again, the universal struggles. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily even know what my question is, but if there's somewhere deeper that you wanted to take that specifically, I would be very interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, so it's funny. So I have a workshop that I run periodically called Boundary Work for Trauma BBs, uh, BB being shorthand for baby. Um, and one part of that workshop is about, like, understanding what our boundaries are and, you know, then moving from knowing our boundaries to actually articulating them. And then the other part of the workshop is how to hear someone else's boundaries mm-hmm. because like, I, I, I will be taking this workshop. Yes. Continue. <laughs> yes. I will, I will see you there, Margo. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so funny, right? Like we, you know, I, I think as I was starting to like actually understand what boundaries were for like the first time, because certainly did not have any whatsoever in my house growing up, um, or at least I did not get to have any other people did, but not me, Um, you know, like getting more practiced in like naming my own boundaries was like revolutionary. But then it's like, you know, you kind of think like, you know, I'm sort of doing this like gesture of like, you know, wiping my hands, just being like, yeah, all right, boundaries done. Like I'm, I'm good. And then, you know, having these moments where people I loved articulated a boundary that, you know, maybe was in conflict with my own boundary. Cause I think that's often when it like, becomes like harder to sort of like hear um, and really getting reactive there and having to like, wow, have this like moment of like profound realization, like, wow, I'm taking this person's boundary really, really like personally. Can you give an example to like ground this in? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll give this one example that I have like talked about before where I had like had this like horrible like conflict with my roommate and I had planned to have this like fun hangout with my best friend that evening and I came over to her house and I was just really activated and you know I had warned her I sort of said like hey I had this fight I'm feeling not super great might need some space to process that um And, you know, showed up there. She gave me all of the space to process because she is an angel. And, you know, then we were sort of like settling in to like do the activity we were planning to work on. And, you know, she said to me, you know, Margo, I'm like recognizing that, you know, it didn't feel like great to, you know, hold this space for you and then like not have you ask me how I'm doing. Hmm. And, you know, I would really love it if, you know, you could just be more conscious of that in the future. And every like fiber of my being was like defense, go on the defense. Like you normally always ask her how she's doing. So therefore, like this shouldn't be a big deal. And like, I was like, really, you know, having this like moment of like recognizing that defensive response and trying to do the boundary work that I believe in, which is to like, you know, express gratitude to the person for articulating that need because it's fucking terrifying to articulate our boundaries, even with people that like we feel really safe with, you know, and it was like this internal battle was like waging within me. Um, And it got messy for a little bit, you know, and she just had to like hold her ground and be like, you know, I don't feel like what I'm asking for is unreasonable. And, You know, I get that, like, it's feeling a bit activating for you because maybe you're still a bit activated right now, but like, you know, I just needed to name that or else it was really going to fester in me and we moved through it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not always perfect, but it's like the commitment to doing the hard, scary thing, knowing that it might get messy, knowing that maybe you might not show up 
as well as you would want to, and that you can like move through that, that I think to me is like more transformational and healing than like anything, you know, when it comes to working through boundary stuff with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things for me is really having to slow down and let myself is like, if it's, if I'm talking with someone that I have trust with and we have this, you know, like mutually respectful relationship where I trust that what they are saying to me is what they actually mean, right? I'm not trying to like read between any lines. I'm not trying to, okay, well, what's the, what are they actually saying? Right? Like that. I'm not interested in any of that. So like being able to slow down and like actually hear what's being said and not what my like scared little ego brain, because I think there's a very easy jump in the story you just told of they're saying I'm a bad friend, yeah. right? Or they're saying that I don't listen to them or they're saying that I take up all of the space, right? Like that they, you, you know, that I am this, right? Like this is my identity that they're criticizing, right? Or whatever. And to actually be like, no, no, that's not what's being said and that's not what's being asked for. And sometimes that's where I like have to just like, oh, pull back, oh, pull back, right? Like, do you actually even hear what's being said or are you making it mean something that the other person didn't even bring up? Yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, and this is where that like vocalizing piece can come really in handy because like often, you know, with that like same friend, I'll, I'll, you know, recognize the trauma response, the story, whatever it is coming up. And I'll say, you know, the story I'm telling myself is, that I'm a bad friend. And, and I share that, you know, and I frame it in that way so that I'm accountable because my best friend asking for that is not accountable. Like it's not their fault that I'm having this response. That's my own trauma, my own stuff coming up. And, and I don't need to like hide that or like push that down, but, you know, I want to bring it up in a way that is responsible and that like, you know, take ownership of that. And, you know, and then that person, you know, can just be like, yeah, thank you for like sharing that with me. Um, you know, I know that it can feel hard to hear like another person's boundary. And so there's space for all of us to exist um, in this moment. And, you know, not in this like, oh, you know, you made me feel bad because you asked for X, but just to recognize that sometimes it feels really hard. And, you know, often another thing I'll do, whether it's like in conflict or whatever, is just be like, I'm recognizing that I'm having a trauma response to you asking for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to like put a pin in this and like pause so that I can just figure out what's happening here. And then because I really want to show up and hold space for what you've asked for here in a way that makes you feel seen. And, you know, we're so, we're so like, I don't even know where this like need for speed comes from. I mean, so many different places, but like when there's conflict, like the hardest thing for people to really hold space for is that like, we don't need to like resolve this immediately. Right, like, right. Yeah, there, it can be given more space. It's not like yes. that we have to, well, I mean, we want to rush through the uncomfortable feeling because it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of course, you know, and, yeah. and for me, it's all about like fear of like rupture if we don't resolve this right now, you're going to abandon me. Mm -hmm. Literally the story that, um, or there's going to be some sort of punishment um, that I'm going to incur. So slowing that down and naming it, because I think, you know, as someone who, who tends to be with humans who are more on the avoidant side of like the attachment spectrum, and I'm like, more on the anxious side, uh, you know, just like totally getting up and leaving the room is not, you know, maybe the, the way to, to create that space, but to just say like, I'm recognizing that I'm not able to be present with like what you've asked right now. I am just going to go take a walk and I will be back in 20 minutes and then we can continue this conversation. And, you know, if you're me, that 
at first is going to feel really, really, really hard. But then, you know, you sort of start to recognize, oh, wow, I'm really activated right now, too. I'm like not feeling great. And then you can both come back together after that 20 minutes. Both of you are like feeling a little bit more regulated. And like, that's the space where like compassion and self-compassion and connection and curiosity can happen. And then you move through it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the person who the like far end of my spectrum is we are going to sit in this room and not sleep for three days until we fucking fix this. Right. Like yeah. I'm yeah. not going to be okay until this is, fi- you know, and then like, I again have to give myself the like grace and compassion for the part of me that just like wants it to be better. Mm-hmm. But so much of what you have shared in this conversation, the th- one of the through lines that I'm taking is just the really radical and transformative benefit of normalizing so much of this stuff like on the daily almost whether it's talking about money or being able to name boundaries or like integrating softness that all of these things like so often we like let things build up build up build up and then we have the boundary conversation when like it's so far past the breach of the boundary right as opposed to like what i want is to be in relationships where like these things it doesn't make them easy but where they're more normalized and if i look at the like friendships relationships partnerships like business collaborations that I'm really trying to build like in this phase of my life, that's at the heart of it. And I feel like everything you just shared is like the pep talk Mm. that I did not know I needed. So thank you. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. I mean, you know, the annoying thing about, you know, making a hard thing easier is that you have to do it. Yeah. It's exposure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you have to show your brain that, you know, the responses that you you know, we're used to and that we're normal, um, you know, either in your family or like culturally or like all of the above, you know, they don't have to be how we continue to operate. Like I, I am like a Sagittarius rising and Aries moon, like my fire energy just like wants us to get creative and imagine other possibilities outside of what we've been given because that's like, I don't know, that's like the magic, like world transformative, self-transformative shit that I just, that keeps me going um, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. I think that is a fantastic place for us to start to wrap up. Mm -hmm. If you could leave folks with one call to action based on this conversation, what would that be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a tiny action to take? I guess like my, yeah, my, my prompt would be to pay attention to the moments where the idea of doing something or saying something brings up feelings of resistance, whether that looks like judgment, um, criticism, shame, uh, this, you know, feeling of like, well, that will never be possible. And to get curious about those moments and, you know, just try to like ask yourself, like, you know, why does that feel impossible? Who has told me that that is impossible? Do I want to believe that? Because I think, in, you know, it's so easy when we feel resistance to something. And this comes back to, you know, your full disclosure moment about like inner child stuff. It's like, those are the moments that like excite me. I'm just like, oh, there's something there for me. Um, to poke at and to get curious about as opposed to just being like, well, I don't like this. And like, so therefore like I'm closing the door on that. I mean, that might still be your choice even after you've like gotten curious and like poked at it a bit more, but yeah, I just, those are the moments that excite me. Those are the moments that produce like massive amounts of like change and healing in me. So just like notice the resistance and get curious about it. Yeah, that that's an awesome invitation. What is the best place for people to find you and say hi or check out your work? Or do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks, basically? Yeah. So I mean, well, it's funny. I would have given a different answer to this a while ago. Um, I used to say, come find me on Instagram, but I'm actually going to be leaving Instagram very imminently uh, for 
I'm not sure how long. So I would say come to my website, uh, which is margofeldman.com. And there are just a bunch of different ways that you can connect with me, a couple of different community platforms that I run where we can get to engage with each other and just like, you know, more intentional ways than, than what social media now allows me to do. So yeah, come find me there. You can send me an email. We can chat. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say email, very old school, right? But like not that old school. Um, I will put a link to your website in the show notes. Margo, Amazing. thank you so much. Mm, thank you so much, Nicole. This was such a nourishing conversation. And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks as well to every single member of our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this entire podcast, and so much of my other work, like my twice-weekly personal essay newsletter called Good Question, possible. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others. And I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community, yeah? And until next time, I want you to know three things. First, that you are enough. Second, that you are not alone. And third, that I'm totally rooting for you. 